Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to the fourth of our Epiphany series, The Practices of Jesus, Cleaning Up the Mess, by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, I'll read verses 9 through 13. Uh, we continue our series on the practices of Jesus. Uh, we are thinking together about how we as human beings are formed by our practices, the things we do every day, the things we do every week, the things we do every year, make us who we are. And so we're looking at Jesus' habitual practices and seeing how they might form us. And this morning, we are looking at the practice of, I had a hard time naming this one, cleaning up the mess, touching unclean things. I I couldn't decide what to name it, but it's something in that area, as you will see. Let's listen to what Jesus does in this passage. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. I read this week that um, when Jesus says, follow me, it has approximately the same weight as when God said, let there be light in Genesis. It's like when Jesus says, follow me, a new creation begins. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. So whenever we hear the Pharisees say anything in Scripture, and whenever we hear them offer an opinion, we tend to discount it. We tend to put it to the side because, well, They are Pharisees, and they are the bad guys. We already sort of know where they fit in the story. So anytime they say something, uh, we tend to discount it. But I think in this case, let's, let's at least try to make an exception, because the Pharisees have some reasonable questions about Jesus' practice, about the company Jesus is keeping in our passage. And there's at least three good grounds for them to be concerned about what they see Jesus doing when he eats at Matthew's house. First, Jesus is keeping some really bad company. These are really, truly bad guys whom Jesus is hanging around with. When we we think of sinners, we tend to, to categorize them on a spectrum. The one end of the spectrum are the lovable rogues. Okay, so there's people who commit sins, who do wrong things, and somehow we still manage to smile and look at them as, as cute rascals. So, for example, Robin Hood. I mean, yeah, he's a thief, but he steals from the rich and gives to the poor, so we smile. Or think of George Clooney and Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, yeah, they're robbers and they're stealing, but they're so charming and handsome. Or think of Ferris Bueller, okay? He lies to his parents, he lies to his teacher, he he gets his best friend to steal his dad's Porsche with catastrophic results, but he's so cute and spunky, we can't help smiling. Okay, lovable rogues. The other end of the spectrum 
are people we view with nothing but disgust. And let's call those, and this sounds severe, but I've got good reasons for doing it, let's call those people filthy animals. We literally view these people as filthy. So they're abusers, traitors to their country, scam artists who prey on old people and the weak. So Bernie Madoff, ripping off people from their life savings so he can enrich himself. Benedict Arnold, betraying his country during the American Revolution. Joseph Epstein, Harvey Weinstein. These are the people we view at this end of the spectrum, and we literally see them as filthy, so much so that if some public figure is seen in a picture shaking hands with one of those people, we look at that person askance, like they've been contaminated. Now, with the tax collectors, we tend to see them on the level rogue end of the spectrum because they hang out with Jesus. But in the first century, among all the people in Jesus' society, they would have been viewed as filthy animals because they were a combination of Bernie Madoff and Benedict Arnold. They were both traitors and con artists. They were despised. They weren't allowed in the synagogues. They were not given the privilege of being a witness in a trial because they were so mistrusted. And according to William Barclay, they were seen with things and beasts unclean. Filthy animals. So the Pharisees had public opinion on their side. Jesus was hanging around with some really, really contaminatingly bad guys. Second, the Pharisees' complaint about Jesus had the force of Scripture on their side. They could look at Scripture and point to Jesus and saying, this man claims to follow God, but he is not even observing the counsel of the Bible. They could point to Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or sit in the company of mockers. And there's Jesus sitting in the company of mockers. And what about Psalm 26, verse 4? David says, I do not sit with the deceitful. I abhor the assembly of the evildoers. Or consider Proverbs 13, 20. Walk with the wise and you'll become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harm. And finally, Proverbs 14, verse 7. Stay away from a fool, for you will not find knowledge on his lips. If you go through the Old Testament, there's all kinds of passages, all kinds of passages warning us to keep company, warning us against keeping company with fools and evildoers. And here's Jesus, who seems to be flying directly in the face of that. And finally, the Pharisees have the weight of common sense on their side. Didn't our own mothers warn us against hanging out with the wrong sorts of people? Honey, it's so important that you choose good friends. Make sure you choose good friends. And if you find your honey, if you find yourself at a party where you shouldn't be, it's okay to get up and walk away. Isn't Jesus at the wrong sort of party? Shouldn't he get up and walk away? That's the Pharisees' contention. And they are good grounds. But Jesus never gets up and walks away from those parties. And quite he does, in fact, he does 
Quite the opposite in Scripture. He heads towards the mess. Jesus goes into messy places, he touches the untouchables, and he embraces the unclean things. It is his practice. He does it here, and he does it many other places. Luke 15, when he tells the parable of the prodigal son, who is he hanging out with? Luke tells us it's tax collectors and sinners. John chapter 4, he meets a Samaritan woman at the well. Convention tells us because she's a woman, and especially because she's a Samaritan, Jesus shouldn't talk to this person. Jesus engages in a long and very messy conversation. In Luke 19, Jesus solicits an invitation to Zacchaeus' house. He goes to eat with someone who is not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. He is the king of the filthy animals, and Jesus sits at his table. In Luke 7, Jesus goes to the house of Simon the Pharisee, and in the middle of dinner, a sinful woman, a prostitute, whom Jesus has forgiven, comes and starts washing his feet, and Simon is disgusted. If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. And finally, in Mark chapter 1, as part of a healing, Jesus reaches out and touches a leper. Again, something explicitly forbidden, something that makes you unclean in the Old Testament. Jesus embraces the unclean, touches the untouchable, and moves towards the messy places. Why does he do this? Why is this his practice? He does it because the kingdom of God is at hand. He does it because the king is here and everything has started to change. He does it because the king is here and the balance of power between good and evil in the universe is starting to change. It's starting to tip. In the Old Testament, if you or I walked up and touched a leper, what would happen? We would become unclean. Evil would contaminate our good. In the New Testament, what happens when Jesus walks up and touches a leper? The leper is cleaned. Good contaminates evil. The polarity is changed. The balance is tipped. In the Old Testament, you were instructed to avoid the company of sinners at all cost. In the New Testament, Jesus sits down with Matthew and the fellow tax collectors, and they are the ones who are starting to change. Jesus sits down at Zacchaeus' house, and by the end of dinner, Zacchaeus is giving away his money, and Jesus says that salvation has come to this house. Good has contaminated evil. The balance is starting to change. In the Old Testament, where did God's people do their righteousness? It was a bounded thing, right? Pretty much within the boundaries of the land of Israel. That's where they were instructed to live. That's where the, the rituals were observed. Now, yes, they were a beacon to the nations, and yes, they were welcoming strangers and foreigners, but they were warned against too much intermarriage with foreigners, and they viewed outsiders with suspicion. It was a bounded place. In the New Testament, what happens? After Jesus' death and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the gospel goes out into the nations, Jerusalem, Samaria, the ends of the earth. 
And people like Paul go into the most pagan place you can imagine, the Areopagus in Athens, surrounded by statues of unknown gods in the middle of all these philosophers, and he stands up and he preaches the gospel, and people listen. Good contaminates evil. The king is here. The balance starts to change. Jesus' practice is to go out and engage the messy places and embrace the unclean things. And because he is the king and because of his death and resurrection, we do not have to be afraid of the unclean places and the messiness of our world. We can go out into the darkest and the dirtiest and the most complicated places and we can lift up the gospel of God, we can lift up God's mercy, and light will conquer the darkness and the evil will give way. Yes, it's still dangerous out there. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. We still have to be careful. But he who is within us is stronger than the one who is in the world. We go into the world, we lift up God's mercy, and we know that that mercy can conquer the hardest heart and make the foulest thing clean. It reminds me of what Brian Stevenson did in his book, Just Mercy. He tells the story, he's a Christian guy, he's a lawyer, and he founded an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative. Uh, and what the Equal Justice Initiative is, is it's a, an organization that goes out and finds underserved people who were wrongly sentenced or maybe even wrongly convicted and tries to get justice for them. It works mainly in the South, and because it's dealing with these sorts of matters, uh, Brian Stevenson goes into some of the darkest and dirtiest and messiest places you can imagine. Like when he tried to help Avery Jenkins. He took up the cause of Avery Jenkins. Avery Jenkins was a young man who had killed, who had murdered another man in his teens and was put on death row despite the fact that he was clearly very mentally ill and the mental illness was, very, uh, was barely taken into account during his trial and was completely ignored during his sentencing. So Brian Stevenson thought maybe he could get Avery resentenced. So he went to visit Avery in prison so he could interview him. And when he arrived at the prison, he was going through the parking lot, and there was a pickup truck there that was covered with racist bumper stickers designed to intimidate. Brian Stevenson is an African-American man. Important to understand this in the story. So the, the back of the pickup truck was covered with Confederate flags and then things much more explicitly racist. And for instance, there was one bumper sticker which said this. If I'd known it was going to be like this, I'd have picked my own darn cotton. Only it didn't say darn. So as an African-American, you can imagine how intimidating it was to see that in the parking lot and then to walk into this prison. So when you walk into the prison to interview a suspect, usually, as a lawyer, it's usually a pretty easy entry. You get patted down, and they let you into the interview room. In this case, a large muscular guard with close-cropped hair and a Confederate flag tattooed on his forearm stepped in front of Stevenson and said, where do you think you're going? You're not going into my interview room until you get into that bathroom and strip down and I search you. And Stevenson said, well, hold on a second. I don't know how it goes. I don't care how they do it in other places. 
in my prison, you're going to go into that bathroom and you're going to strip. So Stevenson goes into the bathroom. He goes through this humiliating strip search. He comes out and he gets ready to go in to interview Avery Jenkins. And just before he's about to enter the interview room, the guard grabs him by the forearm and says, hey, when you were going through the parking lot, did you happen to see that pickup truck with all the stickers on it? Yeah. I want you to know that was my truck. Pushed him into the interview room. When Stevenson finally sat down with Avery Jenkins, he saw clearly that Avery Jenkins was a profoundly broken human being. The records that he'd read before he got to the prison showed that uh, occasionally he would have these psychotic breaks in prison where he would scream for hours and had to be confined. When Brian Stevenson had called Avery Jenkins before he came to the prison, it was hard to even have a conversation with him because he couldn't track. The conversation would just go round and round in circles. And when he finally got to the prison, what he found was a, a man who had no idea what was going on, who was almost childlike. All he wanted was a milkshake. Mr. Stevenson, did you bring a milkshake? I really wanted you to bring a milkshake. How come you didn't bring a milkshake? I really like chocolate milkshakes. This kid was, this man, this young man was so broken that he, he went from these psychotic screaming episodes to this childlike desire for a milkshake. Eventually, Stevenson gets a sense of why Avery Jenkins is this way. He was orphaned at one, got into the foster care system, went through 19 different foster parents before he was eight, started to show examples of cognitive impairment and mental illness, and at 10 that broke because he entered into an abusive foster care home where he was beaten and confined. And that foster mother finally took him out into the forest, tied him to a tree, and left him there. He was there for three days until hunters found him. It left him damaged, and he started mistaking people for demons. When the court date finally came, Stevenson presented this history of abuse to the court. He got experts up to explain how this would do damage, and it worked. After three days of brutal testimony, the judge resentenced Avery Jenkins. He got off death row, and he got into a mental facility. And just before the final resentencing, before Avery was moved, Stevenson went to the prison to visit him one last time. And as he started to come in, who should he see but the same guard who confronted him previously? He braced himself for a conflict, but the guard seemed to be different. He said, Mr. Stevenson, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Stephen said, well, okay, I'm ready. I'll go into the bathroom. I'll strip. I'll do whatever. And the guard said, oh, no, no, Mr. Stevenson, you don't have to do that. You just go, you go right on in. Well, don't you want me to sign the, the logbook? No, no, I signed it for you. You go right on in. And Stevenson realized that the, the guard was sweating, and he was nervous. And the guard said, Mr. Stevenson, I, I want to tell you something. I want to thank you for what you did for Mr. Jenkins. You see, I was the guy who was charged to drive Avery Jenkins to the courtroom every day, so I heard everything that happened in that trial. And I thank you for what you did for him. It meant a lot to me because, you see, 
I was a foster kid too. And I went from home to home and felt like I was nothing. And I still get angry sometimes. And I thought no one had it worse than me until I heard his story. So thank you for what you did. And you know what? You know something else? On the very last day when I was driving the prison van home, I got off the interstate and I found me a Wendy's and I went through the drive-thru and I got Avery a chocolate shake. Jesus stands in the middle of the messy people and he says to the Pharisees, learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Brian Stevenson stands in the middle of the darkest and the messiest and the hardest places that this country has to offer and he lifts up the mercy of God and the evil starts to give way and the hard hearts start to soften. What dark and messy places are you going into this week? What dark and messy places are you carrying right here in your own heart? Come to the table. Jesus is not ashamed to be seen with any of you and with me. Bring your mess, bring your complication to this table. Let Jesus reach out and touch you and make you clean. Let him feed you with his mercy so that you can go out into the messiness and lift his mercy high. Amen. Lord God, as we get ready to approach this table, we are once again in awe of your love and your grace and your willingness, not only to get involved with people like us, but to give your life for us so that all the messiness in us and all the messiness in the world can be made clean. Feed us at this table, Lord. Strengthen us and clean us so we may be ready for service in your world. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.